Welcome to Strive, a podcast of IPS News, where we chat with new voices about fresh ideas to create a more just and sustainable world. My name is Marty Logan. We've all made asses of ourselves at one time or another, but today's guest actually made a career out of it. Not of messing up, but of being the ass. The author of a satirical column that ran on the back page of the Nepali Times newspaper for more than two decades. As full-time publisher and editor of the weekly paper, he says that writing the column went way beyond horsing around. In fact, more than once during our chat, he described satire as serious business. It's a way to hint at what is really going on in the halls of power without playing by the regular rules of journalism. But if you cross a line and hit too hard or too low, you could find yourself in a heap of well, you know what. We also discussed the evolution of the times. It started as a business decision, but soon became immersed in war journalism, reporting on the decade-long Maoist conflict. Gradually, it developed its brand as a paper that went out of its way to report on the state of the country outside the Kathmandu bubble. Simultaneously, it chronicled momentous events including the high-stakes post-war peace process, the downfall of the monarchy, the birth of Republican Nepal, and the devastating 2015 earthquake. Post-COVID-19, Nepali Times has resumed printing a hard-copy version to accompany its website. But the ass, aka Kunda Dixit, believes the physical paper has at most a three-year future before mobile phone readership will render it obsolete. The big challenge, larger even than fending off pressure from anti-democratic forces in government and beyond, will be attracting enough eyeballs, in competition with Facebook, Instagram and other social media, to finance its operations. A quick note, early in the episode the ass talks about the Panchayat, which was the party-less system of government that reigned in Nepal before democracy was restored in 1990. Vyas, welcome to Strive Podcast. Thank you for having me on your show, Marty. Um, and greetings, or as we say in Astam, hee-haw to all your listeners. <laughs> Thank you. I'm sure they appreciate that bilingual greeting. <laughs> now, I was wondering, should I call you ass or Mr. Ass? Well, now that I'm out of the closet, as it were, that uh, everyone knows that I used to write the ass for the last, what, 16 years. Um, yeah, you can call me the ass or the donkey or the mule or the Annie mule, as I used to call myself. Good to have choices. <laughs> of course, in your column, the ass pokes fun at politicians and at society in general, at Nepali culture, um, but especially, I thought, towards the leaders and I have an example here, and it's only one of many, many examples. You might have favorites yourself. So um, it goes this way. And it's poking fun at the political parties in particular. The Nepali Congresses are on the right track, opening up shoeshine businesses on the sidewalks to show that they are engaged in the noble profession of overcharging to polish shoes of passersby. Not to be outdone, the UML can take a cue from Comrade o Oily's declaration last week that money laundering is good for the economy by opening Nepal's first laundromat to wash cash. 
And they can start by thawing the nine billions frozen by the Rastrabadi Bank. The Maobadi can show that they are no longer engaged in bloodshed, but in blood donation, by opening roadside kiosks to draw the blood of the proletariat for transfusions at medical colleges they own. So, <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't be laughing at uh, something I've written myself, but um, you know, the thing is, I I've totally forgotten I wrote those lines. So yeah. it was as if I was hearing it for the first time, and someone else wrote them. Uh, I don't know whether it's old age or whatever, but I I I forget what I've written, and I end up plagiarizing myself sometimes. So uh, with the ass, it was a very similar thing, as you said. Yeah, we were poking fun at whoever was in government. But the government was the same. It was the same people for the last 20-25 years. So uh, we were, you know, kept repeating our, ourselves, uh, myself, as self, um, about, about the same people, up to the same old tricks. So it got kind of tedious. Yeah. When you first started it, yeah. were, did you have an aim of saying things that you knew that you wouldn't get away with in an editorial or in the news pages? Or was it just a way to let off steam? Or what, what, what do you think was Yeah, it was a therapy. It? it was a therapy. I mean, the politics has been, for a long time in Nepal now, so depressing uh, in the news pages. Um, it's, uh, the, the serial criminals have been at it for decades. It's the same people doing the same things, right? So uh, on the back page, it was kind of, uh, yeah, letting off steam, um, you know, regaining my sanity, as it were. Um, but it was deadly serious stuff, you know. So uh, I wasn't chuckling to myself as I wrote those lines. But the reason I gave up the ass, it just became too difficult to write, you know. I used to be tossing and turning uh, on uh, Wednesday night. This deadline is Thursday morning for the ass. What the hell do I write about, you know? And... If I didn't work throughout the week to take notes while I was reading the papers or listening to TV or yeah, listening to radio or watching TV news, if I didn't take notes, then it was very difficult to get my thoughts together to, to put together a column. So um, it became more and more difficult. Uh, I could write a serious piece, even an editorial, in, in you know half an hour, but an ass took took a lot of time and you know, I, I feel very relaxed now that I'm not writing this and I don't have that Thursday morning deadline anymore. What would you consider to be the top, say, three attributes that someone who was going to write an ass-like column would need to have to, to be successful? Mm. Has to be a very serious person like me. <laughs> no, I think, um, no, you have to be very, very up-to-date with current affairs. You have to know exactly what's happening and not just on the surface, but behind the scenes. You have to understand what's going on um, in the corridors of power. And there are a lot of things you cannot write in a journalistic article, in a reportage, where you need, you need to back up the facts. You need quotes. You need, you, know, you need to double-check whether it's true or not. The great thing about satire <laughs> is, that, is that you can't make things up because that way you lose your credibility. But you can... You can um, have innuendo, you can sort of hint at things that could be happening behind the scenes, which probably are happening, we just don't have proof for it. And so satire is a great way to get around these rules of journalism, where in a, in a funny way, but deadly serious, you can say what's really happening in society or in politics or in the country. 
So th that's one attribute. I think um, you really have to be up to date with what's, what's happening behind this. So it means you have to be a really good reporter or an editor. You have to uh, you have to go beyond the headlines to know why certain things are getting out, why other things are not getting out. And then if you don't have proof for those certain things, then hint at them through uh, a supposedly um, funny column. Second thing I think would be to um, have the language, of course. The language is absolutely important. Uh, whatever you're writing in Nepali or English, you have to have the command that uh, would mean that you can use the subtlety of language to write between the lines, to say what is unsaid or cannot be said. Uh, and and it's, it's also that ability to know the language so well that you can play with the language. You can play and, with and it. And twist it But all again, up. you can't overdo it because then that would make people, that would be an overdose. Right. So to know that balance between, and a lot of people have accused the ass. Thankfully, they don't know it's me. <laughs> oh, <you laughs> Until know, I now. hate the ass because, <laughs> uh, because you know, it's, you know it's, it's too much wordplay and, you know, I get lost in it and all that. Yeah, it's so it, there's a temptation to overdo it if you're into that sort of writing. And the third thing is to have that balance between um, content and format. I think to, because content is what are you writing about, right? You are trying to expose something that you cannot do in the ins in the other pages, in the editorial pages, in the front page. You know something is happening, but there's really no proof. So you you're sort of abandoning your journalistic training, and everything that you've been taught that you need evidence and you have to cross check facts. Well, here. You have to cross-check facts, but it can be just a rumor. Uh, but you have to say it in a funny way so that it couches, it doesn't hurt people, it doesn't, uh, you know, hit below the belt because you don't have proof, right? But you know that you can hint at uh, certain trends in society. And also, you can't take yourself too seriously. You can take yourself seriously when you're writing the editorial. Yeah, please do. But when you're writing a satire column... Uh, I think the greatest uh, attribute you need as a comedian is to be able to laugh at yourself. If you can't laugh at yourself and your own foibles and your own weaknesses and the fact that we cannot get to the truth, that's why we're writing this in this way, you know, uh, that sense has to get across to to your reading public. And um, And if it does, then I think they also don't take it too seriously, but they know what's happening. Right, and that's that's the trick. I don't know it, whether it's a skill or a talent, but it's something that I've honed over four decades, <laughs> ever since I started writing that satire column in the Rising Nepal during the absolute monarchy days. Um, so I've been through several kinds of censorship. You know, the the panchayat censorship, which was quite strict. Then after 1990, there were certain. Well, I wasn't writing anything in 1990 here. But, um, you know, after uh, 2000, when we started Nepali Times, it would be, we had full freedom, but, you know, there were certain norms. And then, of course, 2005, again, in the stages, coup, and there was direct censorship, which was even stricter than during the Panchayat, where you actually had army people sitting behind you and censoring everything, paragraph by paragraph, on the screen as you were sending those pages to press. So that's the most direct censorship I've ever faced. But um, luckily, they didn't get the ass, so the ass was never censored. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't get it. <laughs> uh, 
You uh, should have just done the whole paper, <laughs> ass special edition. What well, you know what resembled the ass in the after Ganendra's coup in 2005? The editorial started resembling the ass. First of all, we were censored, right? So we, they would say, take this paragraph out. So the editorial would go with white holes in print. So there were gaps. And then, of course, we started writing. But then uh, we had to write it in such a way that it was satire. I remember we wrote an editorial about how it was environmentally not a good idea to cut trees. And that was very symbolic kind of editorial, deadly serious, about how trees were democracy and free press. And cutting trees was uh, was demagoguery, you know. So we had to use satire even in the in the serious pages. Mm. Something you said ma made me reflect back. Reading the ass, I never thought that the ass was saying, "This is how it is. I, I know it all." As much as you know, you could learn things, mm. and I I also spent a fair bit of time trying to figure out what what mm. what you were saying. <laughs> Yeah, I was never trained in it, but, you know, um, I realized over the years that comedy is deadly serious business. And you have to be careful not to hit below the belt. Um, and also to find that that kernel, you know, that, that little seed that you need to um, poke fun at and then show that the emperor isn't wearing any clothes. But you have to do it in uh, not in a sort of wicked way, not in a you know to give to punish someone, but through laughter and uh, and and an ability to laugh at yourself as well. So on a I guess a slightly more more serious note, Napoli Times has been publishing for now. This is its twenty third year, mm -hmm. I think. Um, and I mentioned earlier that uh, it has a, a fairly substantial audience among the English. Uh, intelligentsia in Kathmandu and beyond now. Looking back at those years and recognizing very clearly that you're not retiring and the paper's not ending, but it is kind of a maybe a moment to look back mm. in general. Do you think the paper has played um, a, a major role in in development in in helping the country progress? And I'm kind of assuming that was one of your goals when you launched it. Was actually. You know, strange. Mm. Uh, it wasn't one of our goals. Okay. <laughs> our goal in launching Nepali Times in May 2000, and it was online. So it was only the second media product that was online in Nepal. First was NepalNews.com. Mm. And NepalNews.com hosted us, hosted Nepali Times. So the first four or five months was actually only online. And the reason we started uh, the print edition was actually to subsidize the losses at Himal Kavar Patrika, which was our Nepali language flagship magazine, which did really well when it started in 1997. The, the circulation shot up to 50,000, but we were losing money on every copy sold because the overheads were high, the, the print quality was very high, so the paper cost, the printing cost, and the ads did not cover it. We were getting substantial amount of ads, but it didn't cover the, uh, the expenses. So we thought, well, why not have a real premium product in English uh, that would subsidize or even maybe, you know, like make the whole business um, break even. It worked. It worked like magic. From day one, from the first issue onwards, we were full of ads. And these were premium ads from premium products, airlines, uh, 
you know, automobile uh, dealers and things like that. And the cost was quite high. Um, and the print quality had to be very high in order to accommodate those ads. So it was a purely economic decision in the beginning. But of course, at the back of my mind, uh, why English? You know, in fact, I, I think that the first editorial on the first issue had the title Why in English? So I think we said something like, well, there is a substantial um, number of Nepalese who are fluent, uh, spoken and written and, you know, uh, reading English. And they are the movers and shakers of this country. And so we really need to show them what is really happening beyond Kathmandu. Actually, we made it a point not just to, we had to write about what was happening in Kathmandu, the politics, but to really go beyond the Charbanjang to the remoter areas. And, you know, remember there was a war going on. So a lot of our reporting earlier, very early on was uh, war journalism was going behind the scenes to uh, scenes of battle to find out what happened and not just count the bodies but which way the conflict was going how ordinary people ordinary nepalis were being caught in the middle and how they're suffering and they didn't want any part in the war so it it, it became a kind of a exercise in peace journalism um i myself went uh, to remote areas got into trouble for doing that um, reporting from Jumla, Kalikot, um, places like that, Surkhet, uh, and bringing the reality of what the conflict and also the underdevelopment of the country and the injustices that were already there um, as a bedrock on which the insurgency happened, bringing that reality to the reading public in Kathmandu. And we did it in tandem. And Himal's readership in Nepali did not overlap at all with the English readership. So we could do it we could do the same story in a different way in, in the two uh, products. I don't know how much of an impact it had, but I think um, subliminally it did um, influence policy decisions, planning, even maybe, if I may venture to say so, maybe even the, the peace process. Um, because I think it was bringing out what was hidden. Uh, most media was covering battles, they were chronicling the carnage, they were counting the bodies. It was a, it was a way to keep score, you know, almost like a volleyball score. 11 Maoists killed, you know, five army people killed, uh, that sort of thing, after every battle. It wasn't really in-depth. And many of our reporters, and they are now editors and, and um, very prominent journalists in other publications in Nepal today, they went out of their way to get those stories back to us. So it was a very challenging time. And of course, then you had um, the Royal Massacre, which was the other big event that we covered. And there, I think our role in both our publications was to keep the extremism um, down so that it didn't sort of boil over. The anger and the shock in the streets was was really in danger of engulfing the country. And so we really had to come out very quickly with what really happened. And it, it just became a detective story that we covered, almost like, you know, how detectives cover any crime. So what really happened in the Royal Palace on June 1st, 2001? And I think it was uh, edition of Nepali Times two weeks later that said, it was Dipendra full stop. You know, so let's end this. You know, we know what happened. And of course, many Nepalis then and today don't <laughs> believe that. Yeah. And uh, we got a lot of 
flag for it from the public. But still, that was that was what the conclusion we had come to after our own investigations. And we had to say it mm-hmm. as journalists. So, yeah, there's very troubled times. A lot of shocking things happened after Nepali times. I joke that it's probably we were probably responsible for some of the troubles that that this country went through. Um, because, you know, look at what happened in Nepal since 2006 till, till now, right? Recent Nepali history is just war, bloodshed, instability, massacres. Uh, it was a very eventful time, I guess. <laughs> mm. So, in, in a way, it sounds like you're saying that really, when you were beginning, it was just trying to do good journalism. Mm. You followed your journalistic in- instincts journalistic instincts. They led you out of Kathmandu, right, where, mm. where things were happening. And in being there, you couldn't but help report on the state of the country as you saw it. Maybe I'm biased because I've worked at Nepali Times, <laughs> but to me it seems like development, that broad idea of development, certainly comes through the pages of Nepali Times more than in other publications. And I don't know if it's simply because development happens outside of Kathmandu, or do you think, has that original approach changed? I mean, now do you think that you are working more through development lens, or again, is that just me? No, I think if you look at, we are Friday morning here, right? And this morning's Nepali Times print, although I'm not the editor anymore, has two stories on agriculture, on sustainable agriculture. It has one story on an indigenous group that is now threatened. Its, its language and its culture is threatened. It has, um, you know, it also has the political stories and an editorial on that. And it, there's a story about how a Maoist guerrilla has gone on to become an MP in parliament after this election. So, I, in a sense, I don't think we have changed our mandate or our focus much, even though there has been a change in the leadership of the paper. I think we're still pretty um, focused on on those things broadly, development, the political roots of underdevelopment, uh, neglect, apathy, of especially of uh, excluded groups and geographical regions. Um, and in a way, since I was, throughout these years, I've also been teaching journalism. Nepali Times also almost became like a, like a lab to practice what I was teaching. So I was, in the morning I'd have class, in the afternoon I'd be editing the paper. And I was, I was forced to put into practice some of the theories of what we were trying, what, what, what we thought journalism should be about in, in a country like Nepal at its present state. And uh, that would be trying to give weightage to people who did not have a voice, who uh, no one cared about. Uh, so their their needs would be heard in Kathmandu, uh, or among the donor community, or about um, you know, internationally as well. So bringing that out, I think that that has not changed. I think we've been quite uh, focused on that throughout. Okay. So obviously uh, today, because of technology, media like Napoli Times are read all over the world. Um, but at the same time, that technology and the different technological advances also means governments have more tools than ever to try to control media, including social media. And because of the technology, again, the traditional models of media making money, the ads that you discussed earlier have also mm-hmm. completely not disappeared, but certainly changed as well. 
So I'm wondering, for you looking ahead now, what do you think is the biggest challenge for Nepali Times? Would it come more from someone, a government or some other, you know, bad faith actor trying to control what the paper says? Or is it more trying to get along in a world where making money from media is no longer as straightforward as it used to be? Yeah, or something else, maybe. Yeah, maybe several layers to that answer. I think um, the crisis in media today is uh, a business crisis. The business model of legacy media has collapsed, right? So the main sources of revenue, which was to actually sell a hard copy newspaper or magazine or sell the space in it uh, and then run the business in that way and provide content to, to readers credible content, um, that has more or less collapsed. So the revenue coming from it, and it's been a steady decline. It didn't happen all of a sudden. It has been, for the last two decades, it's been declining. At first, it was revenue being taken away by TV stations. Uh, the new TV stations in Nepal that came up, they were just more attractive. They had more audience. Then it was the internet, of course. And as the, uh, the eyeballs migrated massively to the internet, to social media platforms. Uh, and with the eyeballs went your advertisers. Uh, and this is not just Nepal, it's happening worldwide. But this crisis comes at a time when you need the uh, public service role of media more than ever before, because you have elected demagogues who are trying to suppress democracy or the free press. We have next door neighbors who are doing that quite successfully. Uh, we have uh, the United States where you see similar things happening in terms of populisms fanned through social media and the algorithms. Uh, so there's a danger of that. Luckily at the moment in Nepal, I think we are probably the freest in terms of free press. Our democratic institutions, however shaky they may look, are still holding up. Uh, you look at other countries in the region where they have either collapsed or have lost all credibility or have been co-opted by elected despots. So compared to them, I think we're still in the, still okay, but uh, I think we can't be complacent because we have an open border. Uh, the winds of that kind of change could come at any time. That kind of populism, bigotry, uh, hate speech, so at a time when you need uh, that that balancing force, the, the the fourth estate or the fourth pillar of democracy to be strong, to to hold up the superstructure of your state, you have a business model that is making media as an entity very shaky and fragile. And shaky and fragile means that you are now financially not so independent as you used to be, which means you are you are open to pressure from either commercial interests or from the state or state actors. Um, we have tried, we have seen in the last decade or so in Nepal, elected governments, elected ministers of information communication trying to, you know, dismantle this freedom piecemeal. Uh, they start with social media, they say, well, we have to control this unruly mob. Uh, but I think uh, media in Nepal is very united in protecting our freedoms. I mean, we, of course, compete with each other. But uh, when it comes to threats to our, our freedom, I think we really uh, have solidarity. And I think it's also sunk into a lot of 
so-called legacy media in Nepal, that we don't really compete with each other. We compete with Facebook and Google for ads now. So how do we um, change our product, adapt our product to this um, new business of media and how, how do we go where the viewers, readers, listeners are in a more um, proactive way rather than just throw it out there and, you know, let people see it or not see it. It doesn't really matter as long as we get the ads. Well, the ads will stop coming if people are not going to read it. So a very, uh, I think a blend of uh, hard copy and online for now is the model. But I talk to my students and they say they haven't touched a paper newspaper for five years. And when is the last time you, you read a paper newspaper? Oh, they scratch their heads. Oh, yeah, just five years maybe, ten years. <laughs> Fish wrappings. Well, at least they can recognize it. It's not like it's not like a record, right? Where they have no idea what a record, a, a wax record is. <laughs> I met I met this guy the other day, and uh, he's reading the hard copy of the International Herald Tribune, um, and he says they have a huge stack at their. They house. call it the New York Times now, Marty. Oh, sorry. <laughs> he called it the Herald Tribune. Okay. Um, and they have a huge stack at their house that they can't throw away because his wife has to sign it that oh. she's read it before they can oh, okay. actually throw one away. So really? there's someone who, who has okay. lots of hard copies. <laughs> and I'm just thinking I better keep my hard copies of Nepali Times now. <laughs> I'll, I'll make a note here. Mm. So just to follow up that last question, you know, I'm, I'm from Canada and I still consume Canadian media. And more and more I'm subscribing, at least for a period of time, to these brand new online media that are coming up, and they're all subscription model. And a number of them have staying power, uh, a decade, coming up to a decade. So either they're bleeding money slowly, or they are somehow making a go of it. Has that something that Nepali Times, I'm sure you've considered it, but is it realistic for Nepali Times? Yeah, we actually considered stopping the print edition altogether, because... Uh, it had been a steady decline in revenue. Uh, we knew that uh, Nepali magazines still had uh, hard copy readership, especially in the far-flung areas of the country. It was regarded as a book. People didn't even throw it away after reading it. So that we needed to subsidize somehow. But uh, Nepali Times was supposed to subsidize it, and it was less and less able to because the ad revenue was dropping. Then the COVID hit. So COVID was the right time, we thought, to because this decline would probably be steeper after COVID or during COVID. So we actually stopped the print edition for one year of both our publications, uh, as did other uh, media in Nepal as well. And we thought we'd probably not start it again. Um, so then we, were, we kept doing the digital edition throughout the, the pandemic. Uh, the readership soared. I think we had five times more reader you know, readers added during the COVID pandemic wow. than before. Uh, so the readers were there and the viewers, because we were also doing video, but there was no revenue. The ads were not coming into the online edition. So we actually had to pedal backwards and say, okay, maybe we need to bring out a print edition. And when we went back to our old advertisers saying we are restarting print. They said, oh, great, when, 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 when? <laughs> so they were excited that we are restarting print. The advertisers were. So we, it became an economic decision to actually start restart the print edition uh, of, um, of Nepali Times as well as Himal. Uh, the ad revenues, of course, are not at the same level. 
but uh, it's still, I think there are still some loyal readers who want to hold it in their hands. And surprisingly, uh, unlike my students, <laughs> um, surprisingly, they, they are younger people too who are going back to paper. They, they feel the, uh, you know, you're reading a, a newspaper that is very well designed on a phone. Just, I mean, it just doesn't have the impact. So when you can hold a paper in your hand outstretched, and it's got like almost a meter across and the kind of pictures that you can blow up, the kind of design that you can do on that, it's just much more dramatic and striking than and then what you see. And, and most people, 60-70% of our online readers are on the phone anyway. They're not even on their laptops. So phone reading is, is what's killing readership. So people don't have the patience to read long form on phones. They may read it if it's on a computer or a laptop, but they will not read it on a phone. It's just too much of a strain in the eyes. So we started, restarted the paper, and um, I think there is still a future to it, but I wouldn't give it more than two or three years for print. Mm. And that'll probably save our forests. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kunda, that's one consolation, at least, for those of us who still like to hold a physical paper in our hands. Thanks very much for coming on the show today and talking to me about your alter ego and about the challenges that Nepali Times has faced and overcome over the past two decades. I look forward to reading the paper online in the next two. Yeah, thank you, Marty, for actually first for giving the ass the opportunity to come out of the closet, as it were, but also <laughs> uh, to think loudly about the future of Nepali Times and uh, you know, how soon this uh, digital transition to only digital will happen. Uh, but till then, I think it's going to be a rocky ride. And uh, all the best to all of us. Thanks again to Kunda Dixit, a.k.a. The Ass, for coming on the show. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Share them on our social channels, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn or write to me at mlogan at ipsnews.net. Strive is produced by IPS News.